welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. You guys ready for this? You don't sound like it. Okay. If you have a Bible, uh, why don't you go ahead and turn to the book of John, chapter 20. It's the last gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And uh, as you turn there, I'll just say this. Um, There's a couple of things that are coming up in the life of our community that are really important. Uh, One that if you weren't here last week, you need to know uh, next week we will have available what is called a charter document. And this is part of our kind of becoming a church uh, or, or an official church in the covenant. And on April 26th, uh, I think we have a slide for that, April 26th at 6.30, uh, those of you who, are, who kind of call this place home and want this to be, uh, uh, I, or I guess would call this your home church and want to be a part of whatever membership or what we're calling partnership looks like in the future, you'll have an opportunity to sign this on the 21st and then you're invited to come on the 26th to Minnehaha Academy, where the, uh, our conference um, in, the, in the covenant denomination will sort of recognize us as a community, as a church. So um, that's really, really exciting. Big news. This is, uh, we're, we're turning three this summer. So um, we're getting out of diapers and we're, uh, you know, moving right along here, right? <laughs> Although, well, I won't talk about my kids and their diaper stories. Okay. Um, so John chapter 20. And um, before we jump into this, I'll, I want I to I start by some, maybe just a little bit of honesty about Easter. Um, how many of you were here at Awaken for Easter Sunday a couple weeks ago? M- many of you were here. Um, so here's the thing. Uh, a lot of us at Awaken, myself included, are kind of trying to figure out how to navigate our experience of Jesus and sort of evangelicalism, right? Evangelicalism being a sort of broad sweeping brushstroke for um, what the tradition that many of us come from, recognizing that's not where all of us come from, but many of us do. And so navigating this tension between what we experience of Jesus and what we have experienced of evangelicalism and sort of our, our story or our past, and the question is kind of like what's worth keeping and what has to go, um, at least for me. There, there are some things that I want to I challenge or I want to critique or I want to offer a different way forward than what maybe I experienced growing up in the church that I grew up in. And I'll be honest, Easter is a really tough one for me um, because the way in which it was celebrated for me was sort of this like, whoa, you know, sort of day where it was like everything, all the stops were pulled out for Easter, like the Easter lilies came out of which, you know, we never had them otherwise. Um, the choir did their deal and it was like this big, huge hullabaloo for Easter Sunday and it was this big deal that was made of this day, sort of almost like this celebrated, elevated, you know, kind of um, situation. And, and for me, it kind of betrays my growing theology of resurrection. And I hope, we, I hope to tease that out a little bit today, but maybe just for now, I'll say that resurrection for me is not a day that we celebrate per se, but it's a reality in which we now live. So it's less about a particular day that we pull out all the stops and we do this thing called Easter, and it's more about how do we live in the midst of a new world that has new possibilities and new things available to us in and through and because of this Jesus. And so if you were here on Easter and anyone felt or sensed like a little tension or struggle or kind of like awkwardness, I just want to sort of name that and say it was awkward. It was awkward for me. Uh, I come to that day, and I think last week I even said, like, I'm kind of glad it's over, Uh, and I've never said anything like that about Easter as a pastor, Um, but this of, like, sort of um, life together, Sundays, our, our rhythm, our natural rhythm feels so much more normal to me and so much more, like, in my own skin, um, but here's what I want to invite you to. 
I want to invite you to the possibility of figuring out as a community like what we do with and how we celebrate Easter and resurrection. Ben and Toph and I meet after the gatherings, usually Tuesday mornings, and we had a long talk about how do we navigate this space as a community and as people as, as far as like how do we do justice to resurrection and Easter because it's a big deal, right? I mean, in the Christian story, it's kind of like if you lose that one, you're pretty much up the creek without a paddle um, or other metaphors you might fill in for yourself. So it's a big deal. So how do we do justice to resurrection and yet live or offer the possibility of living in this new world with new possibilities and that kind of thing? So basically, if you've been with us over the last couple months, we've been doing this series called Eat This Book. And we're actually, Easter kind of came when we were talking about Lazarus and we figured we could, we could work with Lazarus on resurrection because after all, Jesus does raise him from the dead. But then we were going to do resurrection again. So today is John chapter 20. We're going to take another crack at resurrection. Are you up for it? Okay, good. So here we go. Um, I don't know if, if there's any more on the house lights. Can you like boost those? Or I feel like you all are in the dark, and I'm, uh, I see more of you typically. But um, John chapter 20, and we're going to start in verse 1. So if you would, uh, we'll, we'll begin there. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb, and she saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple, who remains unnamed, but in fact is John, okay? John's writing the gospel. He's actually telling this story. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I think in some translations it actually says the other disciple whom Jesus loves. Maybe you have that in your translation. (laughs) It's like, uh, he bent over and looked looked in at the strips of the linen lying there. This is a good Saturday Night Live skit, I can imagine. You know, like Peter's huffing and puffing and John's like, hey, I've been here like an hour, man. Where have you been? Jesus is gone. Um, so then Simon Peter came along behind him and, uh, and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips lying there as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, thank you, we didn't get that the first time, he saw and believed because he's so filled with faith. They still did not understand the scriptures that Jesus had to be raised from the, bed, the dead. And then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I do not know where they have put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying and who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, remember that? She said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned to him and cried in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, do not hold on to me for I have not yet ascended to the father Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and to your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that she had seen these things, or that she, she told them she had, he had said these things to her. Pray with me if you would. God, as we open this story in this text, would you um, do more than that? Would you make it come alive? Would you make it a fresh word from the divine for us today? Would you speak to our hearts? Would you speak to where we're at? 
and, uh, and offer to us a word of hope and of grace and of life, uh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to make a couple of observations about the resurrection story. So you know there are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each of which account for the resurrection. They do so in different ways. Um, some of them have a little uh, different material or some different details that they point out. John is the only one that has this inter- encounter with the gardener who then becomes or who's mistaken for uh, uh, Jesus, j- mistaken for the gardener. Um, Luke and Mark have some other interesting things, but all four account for the gospel, so, or, or the resurrection. I want to make a few observations, and I want to start with this one. Um, the women as the first eyewitnesses. In every single one of the Gospels, all four of them, it's a woman or a group of women who find Jesus first. This is actually quite astounding and actually very, very, very important. You can't get past the opening line of any of the four Gospel accounts before you recognize that this bombshell of women have found Jesus or have found the tomb empty and then go and tell the disciples. So the women become the apostles to the apostles. The women become the first evangelists of this new people of God made and centered around the person of Jesus Christ. Two things I want to draw out from the women being the first and, and uh, the first is this, the credibility of the New Testament accounts of resurrection based on women finding them first. Let me say it this way. Ultimately, if you follow Jesus or you um, say yes to Jesus, following Jesus is an act of faith. It's something that you, you, you come to a place where you say you believe that it's true that Jesus is and was who God said he was and, and that this is God, Jesus, Jesus is God's redemptive action in the world, and it's faith in Jesus that gives you access to this new life. But I'm not encouraging, and I don't think Awaken would ever encourage anyone to sort of blind faith. I don't know if you've been around religious communities before. This is one of the critiques of religion. It's that sort of the the lemmings will follow the lemmings to the sea, right? And, And sort of if the priest or the pastor or the father tells you this is the way it goes, then you accept it because that's what they say, and you put your faith in that. I don't want to encourage you to blind faith. I want to encourage you to think about this and and really um critique it and and ask the hard questions of it. Let me say this this way. If Jesus of Nazareth didn't do all of the things that the gospel said he did do, if he didn't actually die on a Roman cross, if he didn't actually resurrect from the dead as the gospels bear witness to, if he didn't do any of these things, then this, women finding him at the tomb, would be the last possible people in the ancient Near East that you would have as the first eyewitnesses of what Jesus has just done. Maybe said differently if they're trying to convince you about something that didn't happen, if the gospel writers are trying to convince you, if they're cooking up a story here about this Jesus, because in reality, the person that they've, led, they've spent their life following and invested the last three and a half years of their life to is now dead and is still dead, if they're trying to cook up a story here, then this is a terrible way to do it. Women in the ancient Near East have absolutely zero rights a woman's, a, a woman's uh, um, testimony was not admissible in court. So if you had something, you know, a court case that you were trying to, you know, work out and you had to, like, actually go before what we would call a judge now, what they would call something else, but you were in this process, a woman's testimony wouldn't even be admissible. No one would listen. Women were property. They were not the carriers or, or reliable sources of critical information. 
So essentially, if the gospel writers are trying to make something up or they're trying to cook up a story that didn't actually happen, this is a terrible way to do it. You would never, ever in a million years have a woman to be the first. Furthermore, Mary of Magdalene, you guys know her? She was, she was the woman that Jesus cast demons out of earlier in the story. So you've got a woman who was demon-possessed as the first eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus. The most unplausible story on the planet. Now, scholars would, in researching this, this is actually one of the, the first and foremost of the um, sort of critical reasons or evidences that the story of Jesus of Nazareth and the resurrection of Jesus is actually true. That this actually happened. You would never tell the story this way if it didn't. Secondly, as it relates to women, I want to say, the prominent role that women play in the people of God. I don't think it would be I don't think we'd be too far off by saying that the church has struggled with the role of women in in and among the people of God. Can I get an amen? Come on, ladies. I was hoping you'd be a little more into this. (laughs) It's it's, It's no secret that the church has struggled with this, but just think about this, okay? The first person to see Jesus is Mary, a woman. And what is she told? Go and tell the apostles, go and tell. Do you want to know what apostle actually is, like in, in, in the Greek or, or, or in, the way that it's used in the Bible? It's somebody who goes on behalf of and tells. So if, a, if women can't teach or lead or speak in church or do these things, then why on God's green earth would Jesus have a woman and the gospel writers have a woman as the first witness and the first apostle, the first evangelist to the world about the new people of God and resurrection and Jesus? Uh, this isn't a sermon that will walk us through all of the reasons why I believe that, that this church and the covenant as a whole affirms women in ministry and affirms that, that the Spirit gifts the church regardless of gender. Not a sermon where I'm going to walk all through that, but we can't go past the resurrection accounts without stopping here and saying this is, this is a really big deal. And it's really important in how we understand the role of gender and the role of women and, the, and how the people of God work in this new world. So, The first observation, certainly connected to the women that find Jesus um, for credibility's sake, but also for the sake of how God's people work and how how the Spirit gifts the church. Secondly, I would say this. um, The point of the resurrection, the point of the crucifixion and Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, I call it the Christ event. The point of the Christ event, and therefore the point of Christianity, is not heaven after we die. Let me ask you a question. If I were to walk up to you and you were like in the lunchroom at work or wherever and I knew you were a Christian and I walked up to you and I said, what is the point of Christianity? Or said differently, what's the hope that Christianity offers? I'm betting like 10 to 1, the most common response you would get is so that you'd get to go to heaven and not hell. How many, how many for, for those in the room, how many of you, like growing up, vacation Bible school, your experience, that was kind of like, that's the point. Anybody? Christianity? The point's heaven after you die, right? And by that we mean, Micah's got blood blowing, flowing through his body, his heart stops, he dies, we bury him in the ground, and his spirit leaves his body and goes to heaven, 
right? This other place that we call heaven, where there are, thanks to John and the apocalyptic literature of Revelation, which is also never, ever, ever, ever read as literal. There are streets of gold, and there is a white pearly gates, and they're all, sorry to burst your bubble here, gang. I apologize, but I'm just going for it. Okay? So this is, this is essentially like the answer to the question, what's the hope of Christianity? Friends, if that's the point, then the resurrection accounts do a terrible job of communicating it. Terrible. If you read the Gospels and you read how the Gospel writers portray Jesus, more often than not, it's, it's quite symbolic. It's, they use d- imagery from the book of Daniel where he's the son of man. They use this sort of exalted language. They talk about, you know, the star, the, the Psalms talks about the Messiah who will be like stars in the sky and all the shining kind of stuff. And uh, When you get to the resurrection, the tone changes drastically and what we find is a very ordinary Jesus. What we find is a very ordinary human who has come back to life. What we find is... Um, a common theme of, hey, go tell your disciples, go tell your friends that Jesus is, he's, a, he's alive. Not, not like off in some far off land on a cloud, but he's, he's back. He's not dead anymore. N.T. Wright, whom, whom I love, says it this way. He says, what is far more urgent and important than questions of one's own ultimate destiny, speaking about the resurrection here, is to say, as all the evangelists do, the gospel writers, first, Jesus is really alive again. Second, therefore, he is really the Messiah, the world's true Lord. Third, therefore, God's new creation has begun. And fourth, this, this, this moment is the sharp edge of it all. And therefore, you have an urgent and important job to do and a new identity to do it with. The gospel writers in their telling of resurrection really make no mention of heaven after you die, some sort of far off distant land, but rather the implications of the Christ event have to do with here and now, real people living in a real world that God made. And, and according to Wright, whom I happen to agree with, Easter is the message is Jesus is raised, therefore the world's a different place. There are new possibilities. There is a new world order and a new way in which we live as, uh, as people in it. And people who follow Jesus are then called to be witnesses of this resurrection, to announce it, make it happen, and find ourselves remade in the process. Now, it seems that if the, script, if the writers of the scripture had something else in mind, as it relates to this Christ event, the resurrection. And the, the point is most certainly not heaven after we die. Let me see if I can get at it with a question. Why do we believe that our post-death experience will be any different than that of Jesus the Christ? If you think about the point of Christianity and the hope of Christianity, why do we think or assume that our post-death experience what does the scriptures talk about Jesus? They, 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 Paul talks about Jesus as the second Adam, the firstborn of new creation. So why do we think that our post-death experience will be any different than that of Jesus's? Why do we think that our post-death experience stops at heaven after we die? And this is, not, this is not new to the landscape of the ancient Near East. It's not new to the Jewish context and the Jewish sort of... Um, 
uh, mind space. And it's not new to for, you know, pagan mind space in that time either. You don't have to go far outside of Hebrew and Judaism to find the idea of resurrection being a part of the, the landscape of, of their culture and their day. It's, it's well within reason to assume or to think that these people assumed that God would one day recreate the world, that God would one day resurrect all of those who are in God and now we know in Christ for some kind of new experience as humans. And is it any wonder? Where, where do we find John? Where do we find John's, John's gospel? And where do we find Jesus and Mary? Where does she go? To the tomb, but where's the tomb? Not a trick question. It's in a garden. Does this remind you of anything? Hello? <laughs> I'll fill it in for you. Genesis chapter one. In the beginning, The Lord created the heavens and the earth. And where do we find Adam and Eve? In a garden. If Jesus is the firstborn of new creation, is it any wonder that we find him in a garden? So here we have the new Adam in a new garden. And Mary's first task comes from this place. Go and tell your friends. The hope is that one day God would resurrect all of those who are in Christ. The hope is that one day God will do for all who are in Christ what God has done for Jesus at Easter. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you would. A little bit to your right. This is Paul. Paul takes, he wrote most of the New Testament, by the way. He takes an entire chapter, of which I will not read all of, to basically say, if we don't have resurrection... If resurrection, which is the hope of the Christian gospel, isn't in play, we have nothing. Look at what he says starting in verse 16. If the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. He's talking about a future event. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all the people the most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through one man, Adam, resurrection of the dead comes through another. For as in Adam we all die, so in Christ we will all be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. The hope of the Christian gospel is that God will resurrect in bodily form all those who are in Christ. And we will live in the kingdom of God in some kind of new, renewed, remade, recreated world. Not some floaty land distant far off. And, and, and I've, whenever I talk about this, people kind of push back on me and they're like, dude, that's like heresy. The crazy thing is, it's way more biblical than having some floaty distant land that you go to when you die. Nobody talks about that. The gospel writers don't talk about it. The resurrection accounts don't talk about that. The hope of the Christian gospel is something else. Now, let me preempt any of you who've read ahead in the John account to say, well, geez, Micah, Jesus says like he ascends, he goes to... I would argue that that is not talking about Jesus going to some far off distant land called heaven, but rather that exactly what should happen after Jesus has been resurrected. If Jesus, it's, it's essentially... Immediately following the resurrection, which is like the vindication of all that Jesus has claimed thus far, 
It's the proof. It's the proof in the pudding. Because Jesus has been resurrected, all that he's said so far is true. So after resurrection and after he's been raised, which proves he is who he says he was, Israel's true Messiah, he would be what? Exalted and lifted up. This is essentially what John's doing in this text when he's saying, and I will ascend. And does anybody catch what John says about ascension and and resurrection and this whole exalted piece? He says, I am going to my God and whose? Yours. John seems to think that everything that's true for Jesus is also true for those who are in Jesus. That somehow Jesus' victory, somehow Jesus' resurrection, somehow what Jesus has accomplished is also true for us. So let me wrap this up. If I, if I could offer one more um, observation. If we have the women finding Jesus, and if the hope of the Christian gospel isn't heaven after you die, but actually resurrection, it begs us, and it prods us, and it compels us to move beyond observation, which is why I struggle so much with Easter and what I talked about earlier. We have this relationship at Garlow up the street, right? So a couple weeks ago, we go up there, and we're doing this like father, or we're doing this like family deal, and it's a potluck, and then the kids come, and they all play with their families and all this other stuff. So essentially, it's code word for just mass chaos with grade schoolers running around in a gym, which I'm all in for. I'm all up for it. It's great. So we're up there, and they start doing double dutch. Has anybody ever done double dutch before? Yeah, yeah, this is, a, this is a trip, man. And they use those ropes. They're not actually ropes. They're like hard plastic clad ropes, okay? So <clears throat> you got two people, double dutches, two jump ropes, and they're going like this, right? So you have to basically time it, and you kind of have to like do this deal, right? And then you jump in, and you try to get in the double dutch, and then you do your little deal, right? You do your thing. So all these kids, they just like, you know, they're, they've, they've totally nailed it. And these little grade schoolers, they're doing their double dutch. Oh, you go, girl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? So white guy, me, I'm just kind of like standing there holding up the wall, just checking it out. And I'm watching, you know. And I'm like feeling the anxiety these kids are feeling. I'm feeling the tension, you know. They're kind of like, they, they're doing, doing this. And I'm kind of going, you know, sort of like the guy who doesn't have any rhythm just in the corner and, you know, can't really dance, but I'm trying to feel the beat here, Right? So I'm doing this, and some kid looks at me, and he goes, well, are you going to get in or what? I'm like, this just got real. Like, okay, here we go. But what, what's inherent in his question? An invitation to move beyond observation. An invitation to move beyond the place where I watch and I observe and I somehow vicariously feel what's happening, but I'm not actually in it. I'm not, I don't know what it feels like to have the plastic hit me in the forehead because I didn't get the timing right. I, and I don't know what it feels like when you jump in and you get it. And it's like, yeah, it's like all in the world is right. You know, like you, you're in the flow, you're doing it. You're like, and then you trip and fall on your face and everyone laughs at you. But it's an invitation beyond observation. And that's what I'd like to invite you to this morning as it relates to resurrection, as it relates to Easter. Jesus and the tomb in a glass case that we observe and memorialize and put on display, and I'm caricaturing and I apologize, but sometimes that's how it feels when it comes to Easter. Resurrection and everything about these stories invites us beyond observation. It invites us into a new world with new possibilities 
as such, Easter isn't something we celebrate every spring. It's not a day that we set aside, but rather it's a fundamental shift in the way in which we see the world. It's a fundamental shift in the way in which we interact with the world. And it's an invitation to move, uh, to live from this place. It's a shift that invites us to believe the notion that God's, God actually brings life out of death. It's an invitation to believe the crazy idea that to go up, you actually have to go down. It's a crazy shift that invites us to believe that power over is not the way of the kingdom, but rather self-sacrificial power under is the way in which Jesus intends us to live. It's an invitation to believe that the poor, the lonely, the brokenhearted, the meek, the peacemakers, the, the hurt are actually blessed. It's an invitation and a shift that invites us to believe that this is the path to life. And this goes against everything our culture says. Jesus' resurrection is a confirmation of all these things because this is the heart of what Jesus taught when he was alive, is it not? Blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the poor, blessed are the lonely, blessed are the hungry, blessed are all these people who are countercultural, counterintuitive, counter to the way that you think it ought to be. This is all that Jesus taught and lived, and resurrection is the confirmation of those things. And if we don't have resurrection, we have nothing. If we don't have resurrection, then all Jesus offers is a bunch of BS. Because he's still dead. Just like every other person that's come along and said, this is the way it ought to be. This is what God sounds like. This is what God looks like. This is what it looks like to follow God. All kinds of would-be messiahs came along before Jesus and they were all dead and they all stayed dead. Jesus' resurrection is the proof. It's the vindication. It's that which confirms all that Jesus said and taught. And this is what conflicts our modern sensibilities. Because the only way to life, the only way through to resurrection, it's death. And so if you were confused or you didn't hear it on Easter, let me be, the, let me be clear to say that the invitation of the Christian gospel is to voluntarily die. At any point, during the story of Jesus, it appears that he could have changed the circumstances. He could have taken himself off of that cross. He could have done, I remember at my, my great aunt Peggy's funeral, my grandpa Elmer saying he could have called 10,000 angels. My, my brothers and I, we thought it was really funny at that point because we were dumb and kids and we laughed, but he could have called 10, he, Jesus could have changed the circumstances, but he didn't. And he voluntarily lays his life down because he believes and trusts in the heart of God that God is in fact a creator and a life giver. Jesus said, he, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot lose to gain, or who, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. It's backwards and it's upside down and it's a paradox. But this is the invitation of the gospel, to die to all of the ways that we live that don't actually produce life. To die to all of the ways that we think will produce life, but actually in the end don't. It's the great reverse. And this is the invitation of the cross. The only way to resurrection is through death. And so I guess I would leave you with that question this morning. 
is there, is there something in your life that you would ask God, something that has died in your life that you might ask God to bring new life from? Is there something in your life that needs to die? Maybe it's your will. Maybe it's your pride. Maybe it's your inability to like fully take hold of this. And by die, I, I just mean lay it down. Let it go. And believe that Jesus is who he said he was. If they're trying to cook up a story, women would not have told, been the first witnesses. And there are all kinds of other arguments for the proof and the existence of Jesus and resurrection. And so I would invite you this morning to consider if you follow Jesus, Jesus is the God of resurrection and this is what God does, brings life out of death. So maybe just in these next few moments, I want to invite you to a time of reflection and then we'll close with one song and maybe just a prompt on the screen. If there's anything in your life that has died, might you ask God to bring new life out of it? And maybe if for the first time you are considering or contemplating following this Jesus, then death is the only way to resurrection. Find us online at www.awakeningcommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash community or on Twitter at Awakening Community. See you next time.